Welcome back to Happiness Habitat. On today's episode, you're going to get to hear from Olympic silver medalist and one of the world's leading experts in design thinking, John Coyle. A highly sought after speaker and lecturer, John is a graduate of Stanford University with a degree in engineering, product design, design thinking, and Northwestern's Kellogg Graduate School of Business with an MBA in organizational behavior, marketing, and entrepreneurship. A former head of innovation for a Fortune 500 wireless telecom, John has also been the senior vice president of innovation for a leading strategy consultancy. John is a world-class athlete in two sports, cycling and speed skating, and an Olympic silver medalist, as well as an NBC Olympic sports analyst and a guest lecturer on innovation at several leading universities. John is a two-time TEDx speaker and an award-winning author of two books, including the bestseller Design for Strengths, Applying Design Thinking to Individual and Team Strengths. John is also a thought leader in the field of chronoception, the neuroscience and psychology of how humans process time. You're going to get to learn about John's journey and his path to his successes and how he truly lives an epic life and how you can create this for yourself too. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Happiness Habitat. I am joined by my friend, John Coyle. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, pleasure to be here. You are on such an adventure right now, and you've created such an adventure. We'll jump into that a little bit, but I want to kind of dive in because you've had so many amazing experiences in your life, one of which participating and actually winning an, a medal at the Olympics. Can we, can we talk about that really quick? Of course we can. <laughs> so tell me, what was that like? What was your experience? Because I know that kind of led into some of your life's mission thereafter. So let's jump back to uh, what it was like participating in the Olympics and actually receiving a medal. Well, you know, the, the, the carry forward, well, there's a lot of carry forwards from sports, but the one that really is the, the core of myself and my, my obsession now is in sports, really small increments of time really, really matter, right? So, you know, gold to 10th place in my event in the 2002 games was 31 one-hundredths of a second. And what I realized as I got older is <clears throat> that's actually true for all of life. So every day, our, our lives are built out of moments, not minutes, not months, not years. Every day and every week and every year, we have these moments where you say yes or you don't. You turn left or you don't. Um, you approach the girl, or you don't, you say hi to the guy or you don't, <clears throat> right? You go in the building or you don't, you make the decision to do a podcast or you don't, right? Those things all happen in moments. And our life is actually built out of a series of snapshots of moments. And that realization that, that, about, that the value of an increment of time is not related to its duration, right? So two one hundredths of a second to determine gold from silver in a... Olympic contest, well, two hundredths of a second can also determine the trajectory of your life based on whatever's happening around you. And so being aware that these small increments of time, these snapshots, these Polaroids can reset your trajectory is a fundamental shift, I think, for a lot of people, certainly for me. And uh, that really defines my life now. That's beautiful. And how can one be more in that moment? How can one be more observant of that moment? Because you truly only get to experience one moment. So right. how in your eyes is that? 
Well, I think there's a, a few different ways. Um, you know, moments really only matter if they're remembered. So your sense of the you that you are, Jacqueline, the, the, the me that I am, is really the stack of my memories, right? We don't actually live in the future. We can't. And we don't even live in the present. Our brain takes about three tenths of a second to process anything. So we're always running a little bit in the past. And you're, the way that memories are created is, is relatively new neuroscience. But the short version is uh, it's about every two seconds your brain is sweeping a new short-term memory to long-term memory. You can hold up to seven seconds, but that's the most you can hold. Now, when things get interesting, when you're under pressure, when there's a sense of danger or risk or excitement, uh, by the way, the hippocampus is what writes the memories. It, it will, the amygdala will trigger and it'll write memories 10 to 15 times per second. So this is why time seems to slow down in really, really heightened uh, circumstances like a car crash, for example. And so here's the thing though, amygdala driven memories are denser, they store more data and they're more highly recalled. And so as adults, as we get into a more safe, comfortable routine for a lot of people, they stop having these sorts of memories and life becomes super safe, super comfortable and also not memorable. Mm. And here's the, the real rub. If you've ever found yourself like in the parking garage at work commuting <clears throat> and uh, didn't know how you got there, I would argue you actually weren't alive because if your brain didn't write it down, then it didn't happen. Wow. And the risk is that if you don't start creating these types of memories, then life speeds up and it feels like summers that used to last forever now last like a week. Wow. And I remember too, going one to your workshops uh, a while back, quite a few years ago, um, you actually brought that up, you know, this summer, making the summers longer and, and it's, you related it almost to, I think it was the, uh, the water hose. Yes. Yes. Can you so bring the that metaphor, back, refresh the, the water hose? Yeah. So the metaphor here, I like to use metaphors because the, the neuroscience is, you know, it's pretty complicated, but the metaphor is, that time passes through your brain and my brain much like water passes through a garden hose, a fixed flow of water. And so when you squeeze the aperture of the fixed flow of water through a garden hose, it speeds up. And this is what our brains are doing to time. And they're squeezing down on your garden hose of, of time. <clears throat> and, you know, for an eight-year-old, well, that aperture is wide open because if you think of base times height for the aperture of a garden hose, the base being the breadth of experiences, so the number of new experiences. Well, everything's new for an eight-year-old, right? And the depth of experiences, which people tend to forget about, is the emotional intensity. So for eight-year-olds, right, everything's new and everything's exciting and scary and sad and funny and crazy and <clears throat> first baseball game, first uh, time seeing the mountains, first win, first loss, first crush, first breakup. Like, their garden hose for life is wide open and time turns <laughs> through and summers last forever. <clears throat> But as people get older, they have less new experiences and less emotional intensity. And by the 20s, most people start to feel the speeding up of time. And for a lot of people in midlife, their aperture for time is so small that a summer as an eight-year-old starts to feel like a decade. And I've talked to people, and this is so scary, that I'll say things like, I don't remember the 2000s to 2010. Like, a whole decade is lost. What? Because they were just oh, stuck no. in their routine. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the death of life. Wow, that's, that's crazy. So what are some of the things someone can do to actually make their life that much more memorable, make their life that much more? I mean, are we talking about creating those 
engaging and amazing experiences for yourself, like how can one, how can one do that? If they are in the routine, uh, there are, they're currently in the routine or whatever that might be, how can one actually create more of a memorable life? So anybody and everybody can do this. It doesn't actually cost money, uh, but you can definitely buy time with your money. I mean, we buy money with our time all the time. Time and money are fungible. So all this at work are buying money with our time. But there comes a point in life where I think it's time to start buying time with your money. And there's 168 hours in a week. And even if you work 60 and you sleep another, you know, 45, still leaves you with a good amount of time to spend finding new ways to trigger your brain to generate memories. And, and I, I think there's about there's five major triggers and, uh, and they work with the amygdala and also the flow state, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. We'll get to that in a second, but uh, beauty. So our brains just light up when there's beautiful surroundings like here in Telluride or beautiful music or beautiful friendship or love, like any kind of, of beauty is number one. Uh, number two is uh, physical intensity can really add to memory making, you know, it just triggers the brain to start storing more emotional intensity, absolutely essential, right? If you are not fully engaged with whatever you're doing, you're not going to remember it. It's just the way the brain works. Uh, uniqueness, so anything that's new and different will trigger the brain to store more memories. And then the fifth, which sort of overlaps with all these other four, and if you can get all five at once, it's magic, is the flow state. So. If you're doing something you do well, something you love, something you're fully immersed in, this can be, by the way, this doesn't have to be adventure sports. That's a really good place to start because it it tends to encapsulate all these. But it could be a conversation with a friend, a deep, intense conversation. It could be this conversation, right? Like, Mm -hmm. if this goes well, it'll be over like that because we'll both be in flow. We're talking about things we care about. And afterwards, we'll say, wow, that time disappeared, yet a lot happened. And that's the, the magic. And so yesterday, you know, I went up for a very intense four-hour mountain bike ride to a glacial lake up here in Telluride. And that was everything. It was beautiful, physically intense. It was emotionally intense because it was very, it was very arduous experience. <laughs> it was definitely unique for me. I'd never been up there. And I was in the flow state because I've been a cyclist my whole life. So this is something I know how to do well. So that's, that's the five triggers. And I think when you can stack all five, you don't have to stack all five. You can just have one. But occasionally, if you get all five, you're going to have a kind of memory you'll never forget. What a wonderful life that is, truly. That's so beautiful. And just going back to time, what was that like? Because as you mentioned, you had like a split second to make it from one one medal to another. How do you right. optimize that time? And what, what was that like? Because that's, I can't even fathom. <laughs> I mean, the sport, sports are tough, especially my sport and other sports where the margins are so small. And so, you, you know, you find yourself always second guessing, you know, what would have taken, you know, to be on top of the podium. And, I, you know, I, I actually had a rough time with being a first loser for about 10 years. Like, <laughs> I, I didn't talk about it. Like, I, I mourned this lack of victory for a long time, which seems insane in retrospect. but you know, as competitors, we're really wired to Oh, I lost you.
to only in about 20 seconds. And uh, by the way, the Greeks have a word for this. Uh, we only have one word for time. It's the most common uh, word in the English language is time. But that's like, we just overuse it. It's like the Inuits only having one word for snow. So the, the Greeks had two words, chronos, which is clock time, and more importantly, kairos, which they use about two thirds of the time, which is human time. And the etymology of kairos is when everything happens at once and the trajectory is reset. And the, uh, the full etymology is when an archer releases an arrow, right? Everything happens at once, the trajectory is set. <clears throat> and this, these moments happen, these Kairos moments happen. So here's probably the most important Kairos moment of my life. I'm 10 years after the Olympic Games and not talking about it and still embarrassed about it. And then I get invited to be the analyst for NBC at the Torino Games. And I couldn't say no to that. So suddenly I'm back in the sport and I'm talking about it and meeting and greeting all the parents and coaches and skaters that was my job as the analyst is to get the backstories and on the 16th of 17 days at the winter olympics a parent pulled me aside and in about 20 seconds changed everything in my life so we're at dinner it's the night before the gold medal round for the men's uh, final event my event and uh he says hey john i want to tell you something it's really important i said okay so we walk away from the table and he says i just want you to know that we wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for you and i said i i don't know what you mean he said you won't remember but 12 years ago, you came into a little reception in Bay City, Michigan. You brought your silver medal. You put it around my son's neck, Alex. He was 11 years old at the time. He'd never skated before in his life. And tomorrow, he's skating in the gold medal round. Wow. And that changed everything. I started coaching. I started announcing. I continued to be the analyst. I, and most importantly, I started talking about it. By the way, as you know, this is all I do for a living. <laughs> right? Right. So my entire life hinged on that one moment and now that, i get paid to travel the entire world give me chills beautiful stories that is so beautiful what a what a purpose what a what a mission that you're on and you're truly empowering others and helping people lead a better life and i want to ask you to you know understanding so so there's time right but understanding time how we can literally flex time with just our experiences that we create for ourselves how does that to you relate to the quantum world? Because I, I study, I like to study kind of quantum physics because that truly makes up everything. So, you know, you could argue, well, time isn't really, it's just an abstract that we've created in this human world. But what is that, like, what does that mean to you in the quantum world? Yeah, so time is a human construct, but it is also a thing, right? Like physicists argued about it for a while, whether it was real or not. <clears throat> As Einstein said, um, the only reason for time is so everything doesn't happen at once. Um, but, you know, where, where I think, the way I think and the way the quantum world sort of intersect is if you think about a second, for example. Well, a second is made up of, you know, uh, I think it's a thousand picoseconds. And a picosecond is made up of so many um, nanoseconds. And then a nanosecond is made up of ultimately the smallest unit they use in the physics world is a Planck length. So there's more Planck lengths of time in a second than there are stars in the universe. Mm -hmm. So if you think about how much can happen in a moment, well, it's nearly infinite, right? The birth of the universe, more happened in the first couple of Planck lengths of time than has happened in the last 12 billion years. And so this sort of inversion of meaning and time and finding out that, oh, wait, 
the most important elements of time are the small ones, both in the physics world and in the way we live our lives, that while that, that inverts really the way we tend to humanly think about time, which we tend to think about clock time and that, oh, it took me weeks to do this thing. Well, actually it took you weeks to prepare, but the thing itself probably happened in a moment. <laughs> and that's really how I continue to try to live my life, which is to be aware and cognizant of when those moments can be happening and try to design them as much as possible. Mm. And you have a book about, you know, design, design thinking as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that and share more about just design thinking? Because I think that's, that's so <laughs> interesting. <laughs> the design thinking is a methodology. It's a process and a mindset that came out of Stanford, actually. Um, and the father of design thinking is a guy named David Kelly. And he's the head of Stanford's D School of Design School. He's also the head of IDEO, which is an uh, innovation consulting firm. But perhaps more notably, he was also Steve Jobs' key designer for better part of 15 years. He helped uh, develop the first mouse, the Macintosh Lisa, and, um, and even uh, the first iterations of the iPhone. <clears throat> David is the father of design thinking. He actually coined the term, and I was very fortunate to have him as both my professor and my academic advisor and mentor in college at Stanford. So the design thinking really at its heart is solving complex problems through empathy and iteration. Hmm. And so, and really the, what it always comes back to is if you're stuck trying to solve a hard problem and you're not having success, you've probably defined it wrong. Hmm. And so we, we, we run into this thing that over and over again, you see it in, in relationships and politics, in business, in things like, you know, world hunger is we're probably solving the wrong problem usually. And that's because we don't really understand the landscape fully. And this thing happens, which I call Maslow's hammer and Occam's razor. So Maslow's hammer is if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So you look at some sort of problem and you say, okay, world hunger. So we just need to throw food at people. That's the most obvious answer. But Occam's razor, which goes right hand in hand is, you know, usually the simplest given solution to any problem is the right one. And I, argue, I would argue that's never true for complex problems. So when you combine these two, we find ourselves in situations like with world hunger, for example, where we've been throwing food at African regions for decades <clears throat> with no success because mm -hmm. we're solving the wrong problem. The, the right problem is something probably around how do we teach people to sustainably grow and, and have clean water and, and, and other things, right? Like it's much more complex than just throwing food at people because that doesn't solve the problem. And so that's the heart of design thinking is do we really understand the problem? And we tend to go right to the most simple. I, I mean, you know the story of my skating career. I, for years, I followed both of these, which was, oh, John, you have a weak aerobic motor. We need to fix that. So I trained harder than everybody else. Well, it turns out that was not the right problem to solve for. And I went from 12th in the world to 34th in the world to not even making the team, two years of training with the Olympic team. And so I quit the team, not the sport, redefined the problem, which was how do I des design for my strengths? And I trained by myself for a year after that, focused on the things I do well. And a year to the day of not making the team and getting 30th place at the U.S. trials. In the same U.S. trials a year later, uh, in my first event back, I broke the U.S. record by five and a half seconds, the world record by over a second, and set every U.S. record back to back because I was solving the right problem. Wow. And that's design thinking. Sounds like you've truly, though, in that way, you figured out 
you know, you figured out the problem and then you optimized for it. Right. Because if you're optimizing and you were trying to fix the wrong problem, you're not going to have that solution there. You'll so, never have a solution. Yeah. So what are some of the ways that, you know, cause I talk about this in the book to optimize your opportunity zone. What are some of the ways that you like to optimize, you know, your state of flow, um, your being, because, you know, obviously you can try and figure out the right problem. Um, what are, are there any other ways that you kind of look to create more of a flow in your life? Yeah, I think the number one way, and this is what my first book is all about is, which is called design for your design, um, design for your strengths is, and this is my cocktail question. I'll loan it to you. You can use it. Um, what are you best at? So I, I like to ask this question. It's a great and question. <laughs> 80% of the time it's deer in the headlights. <clears throat> and I don't, I, I'm not sure there's many more important things because we all have our strengths. We all have native talents. And, and by the way, almost all strengths come at a cost of an associated weakness. <laughs> And we don't want to admit this, but if you're creative, you're probably disorganized. If you're a big picture strategy person, you're probably terrible with details. If you're detail oriented, you're probably a perfectionist. If you're practical, you're probably critical. If you're calm, you're probably unemotional. And I could go on and on and on, right? These strengths come with a cost. And for me, designing, <coughs> designing for your strengths is about how do I keep moving myself into an environment that that appreciates my strengths and doesn't care about my weaknesses. And so, you know, my career really followed this pattern. I started out as a PMO, which is the worst job in the world for a creative disorganized person. It was terrible, <laughs> just terrible at it. I did that for a year, barely got by, and I went to my boss and I'm like, you know, I'm not sure this is a great assignment for me. I was a consultant, so at least I had choices. I'm like, I think something more along marketing might be a good fit. So I moved into marketing, but that got to be very operational. So I'm chasing details. Again, not my strength. So I said, hey, you know, I think strategy might be a better fit for me. And that was better, um, but it's a lot of data and analytics. And so I went to my boss and I said, you know, I think innovation might be a better fit for me. I'm more of a creative, innovative thinker. And then I moved to lead innovation for a company for a while. And that was a pretty darn good fit. Um, and it wasn't until later in life that I realized that one of my other adjacent skills was storytelling and uh, you know it was only five years ago that I did my first TEDx talk and three months later I quit my job and this is all I do now so finding your core strengths getting into that flow state you're just four to five times more productive you you learn faster you're more effective and, and then I think there's a subtle ingredient this is something that I think we probably talked about at one point when you're doing what you do best when you're in the flow state people sense it there's some sort of intuition about it and they people galvanize around that kind of energy and it leads to more and more opportunities and people cleaving to you and it's just this amazing sort of force of nature that i i experience over and again and i you know i love it that is so cool <clears throat> i I love that so much. That's, that's so true because when I, I can say that even for me, it's like when I, when I first started this um, podcast and I started letting my friends know, you know, just about the book that I was writing, they're like, this is you. They're like, keep going. They're like, don't stop. Right. This. Or when I, you know, when I create, or I also am an artist. So whenever I paint, they're like, how did you, this is you. <laughs> right. So 
it sometimes it's not always even for the other person that obvious thing what's a good way for someone to figure out their strengths like so because some people they go through the motion of life they're in their nine-to-five job and they're not sure yep. if they enjoy it or not so how can one actually figure that out you know and throw i would say that probably 80 percent of people never find out and throw calls a life of quiet desperation right. and I, I think that's what a lot of people really do lead now they have their their friends and their family they have love they have, they have a lot of the good things <clears throat> but Maslow's hierarchy, you know, safety, security, um, love and belonging, uh, they get to the fourth rung, which is the esteem of their comrades. But self-actualization is the fifth step. And I think most people never get there because the thing, the ladder they've been climbing is not the ladder that leads to that. Now, some people are lucky they're born to be a lawyer, I say. And so they climb right up to that fifth step and they're, that's what, that's who they are. That's what they should be. And that's great. But I think that for most people, and I experienced this, I got to the top of rung four where I was doing really well in my career, but it's a, you know, the, the pyramid gets narrower and I felt vertigo. Like that's the feeling was like, wait, I'm here. I'm windmilling my arms here and I don't know how to get there because there's no way up from here. And I, I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. And for most people, it's actually a leap. It's a tumble off the edge. You've got to go all the way back down to losing safety, security, and belonging. And, and so I did, right? I quit. I didn't have a paycheck. I didn't know if I was going to be able to feed myself. Thought I might be couch surfing. Um, but eventually, I found self-actualization. And so I think for most people, it is taking the risks to do that thing that you feel a strong intuition that's been calling you for years, maybe decades, and, and to finally take that risk. And, and frankly, most professionals have the capacity to do this, right? They've got 401k, they've got money in the bank, they have a, a whole slew of trusted friends that you could go back to your job, right? You can always go back. And if you don't try it, well, then you might have missed out on the life you should have been living. And I mean, I can't even imagine if I was still working as a consultant or as a executive in a company like that life now compared to this life, there's no comparison. Wow. I almost, I won't say who because they have this job right now, but someone, one of my family members, they're a consultant, killing it the best. And I can like, I can just see it and feel it because it talks about, you know, leaving to pursuing, you know, starting his own company. And, and I can just like see it, the future of just total different enjoyment of the life that, you know, that person will soon create. <laughs> I'll tell yeah. you after we hit the yeah. uh, record button. Like but yeah, <laughs> that's, that's such a beautiful thing. Wow. And I want to know too, what is, I know you're now you, you create your own life, you construct your life, you construct your day to day in your every moment. Uh, what is your day to day look like right now? It's, um, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> most morning, well, every morning I get up, I make bulletproof coffee and I sit looking out the window, whatever amazing uh, backdrop that we are in today. It's Telluride. Uh, we were recently in Gunnison, Colorado at the Hartman Rocks, and that was incredible. Before that, we were in the Badlands and the Black Hills. Tomorrow or tonight, it'll be Durango. And after that, Moab and Canyonland and Arches. And a big, a couple hour or two a day is plotting, 
where we're going to go next. Yeah. So we have not stayed in a campground and we will not. Um, so it's either a friend's driveway or what's called boondocking, which is I use Google Earth to zoom into offshoots off the highway to find dirt roads that have a parking spot. Sweet. That, that have, you know, amazing scenery. So that we're not bothered by people. We don't have any noise. We don't listen to generators. We don't have people playing music, right? And we're fully self-contained in this thing. I mean, we've got at least a week's worth of water and, and everything else that we could possibly need. So that's a big part of the day. Usually a bike, <clears throat> usually a bike ride. Um, depends which, I have five bikes with me. So road bike, bad bike, e-bike, tandem. Uh, and my girlfriend Jordan has her bike. And then uh, I'm doing some writing. So I'm working on my, my next book, which is called Counterclockwise, Designing Endless Summers. Love and that. So, I'm excited. <laughs> and then, you know, outside uh, with a fire or the propane heater in the evening, sitting out looking at the stars. We have become, I think, uh, old people because when your day is really revolves around the sun, we, we get up early and we tend to go to bed early, relatively speaking. I mean, I used to be a total night owl. Now we're in bed by 10, sometimes nine. Um, but that's the day. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Hello. That's kind of like my dad too. He, when my dad, he, he never called it retirement. He called it right. replacement. So instead of, you know, the, the business that he owned, he now was able to go travel on these islands and hike all these beautiful mountains all over the world. Like he's just, I'm trying to be like my dad. <laughs> right. That's so cool. And I'm sure your daughter feels the same way. <laughs> in yeah, she's in college right now, but she's uh, she's definitely an adventurer. She's the the leader of her tribe of troublemaking in college. And oh, I wouldn't okay. have it any other way. <laughs> and you happen to mention that you're writing a book right now. And I'm wondering, can you give any little drips about what this book is about, I think the subtitle of the book kind of sheds some light yeah. into it. But if you could touch on it, I would love to, to hear about it. Yeah. So there's lots of books about time perception and all the weird wonky things that happen. Um, one of the best is called Time Warped. So I would recommend that as a, as a read. But they are, all of them, thank God, descriptive. So they, they describe what happens in things like when you stay in a cave for 60 days or you know, if you fall off a roof, this is David Lee Eagleman's great experiment, you know, he fell off a roof as a kid, and as an adult, he, he re, and it felt like it took a minute, and as he studied physics in high school, he realized that that entire fall was like six-tenths of a second. And so, you know, all of these strange things happen with our perception of time, and what that doesn't exist in this book will create is a prescriptive way to slow, stop, and reverse the perceived acceleration of time that most adults feel and experience the endless summers of your youth again. And no joke, I'm, I'm 20 years into 2020, and this is for sure the longest year of my life, so cool. bar none. And last year was the longest year of my life, bar none. And so each year, as I get better at this, because it is a skill and it's, a, it's also a, a discipline, each year gets longer and longer. And I, you know, I truly feel like I've lived several hundred years in the last decade. That is so awesome to hear. And we definitely relate to that because I feel as though, you know, the years might go by a little bit quicker, but the experiences, the, the experiences that I've, I've been able to give myself and the opportunities I've been able to create, I have been around for so long. Like I am <laughs> right. not 26. Okay. Right. 
my 46 experience wise. Right. Right. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I have, I have one last question for you. Yeah. I mean, this podcast, it's called the happiness habitat. So I want to ask you, how do you define happiness? Uh, that's a great question. And I de- I probably don't define it the same way as other people. Um, I personally believe that suffering is a part of life and, and there's an order to suffering and joy that's really important and very specific that suffering must precede joy. And so there's a, actually, I learned this term a year ago when I was down with Chip Conley at his compound in Baja type two fun. So yesterday was a great example of type two fun. I suffered for two and a half hours going up that mountain up 3,300 vertical feet. And it also got cold. <clears throat> so I'm cold. I'm alternately sweating and freezing and struggling and breathing into thin air at 11,300 feet. And then I got the joy of A, that incredible uh, scenery, and B, a 35-minute bomb down this super fun, steep single track. And the suffering preceded the joy. That's type two fun. If the joy precedes the suffering, this is the root of all bad things right? This is cocaine. This is heroin. Uh, this is the hangover, right? And so I try to always choose my suffering because I know it's coming anyway, <laughs> right? And so if I get to choose what my suffering is, whether it's struggling on the bike or working on a new problem or writing an article or preparing for a new talk, right? That, that's all some form of struggle. Then the joy afterwards is that much better because you, know, you think about it. If you, if you take the gondola up for a nice run in the powder, that's a great day. There's nothing wrong with that. If you hike for three hours to get untracked snow, I can guarantee you that run will be vastly superior because you will have earned it through your struggle. And then the rest of the day is smooth sailing. Like I cannot be flummoxed if I've gone through a rough physical adventure right like the rest of that day you, there's nothing you could say to me that <laughs> make me angry or trigger me right it's just Touché, you're so yeah. calm <laughs> that for me is happiness is choosing my suffering earning something that's joyous from it and then being you know sort of unflappable such a beautiful thing i don't think i've observed that exact perspective I've experienced it, but I haven't taken the time to observe that. And I am definitely going to be adapting that referenced by you. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for that. And where can everyone find you? Uh, just johnkcoyle.com. Amazing. Well, John, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for joining the Happiness Habitat. Make sure to check John out, you guys, and check out his upcoming book. Thanks so much, John. All right. Catch you later. Thanks for joining me on another episode from Happiness Habitat. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and share with a friend so they too can learn from the lessons on today's show. I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.